Welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mahna. Today on the series, we have Egyptian photojournalist Nadia Man Al Mufti, who for a large part of her career was at the AP and is the winner of not one, but two Pulitzer Prize for breaking news. Um, it is a huge honor to have you on the series. Welcome to Afikra. Thank you, Mikey. Thank you. So, Awal Shee, hmm. how are you? I'm um, fine. You don't you don't do a lot of these interviews no. and it must feel weird to be not only on the not have a camera in front of your face like but also be the subject of a conversation on a scale of 1 to 10 how uncomfortable is this for you For me it's like 7 being the worst I mean 10 being the worst <laughs> Yeah 10 like being the seven worst 7 or 8 <laughs> Okay my handler's sweater. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Hey. So uh, the reason why I asked that question is because you have a really keen eye for observing the, uh, people. But I wonder if part of the main skill that you need to do your job really well is to not only observe, but also to be unobserved and to actually disappear from people's sight. Do you feel like that is like the key role that you have to do in order to be able to capture stuff? Yeah, of course. You know, it's like the old saying, you have to be a fly on the wall, right? It's not like the elephant in the room, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you really need to, um, and that comes with a lot. It comes with making people comfortable with you. A lot goes into it. You can't just be taught these things. You know, there, there are some instincts and People are so smart, wherever they're from. People are very smart and can get the feel of your energy. So that is hard to, um, it's not in text. Yeah. You know, it, it, uh, if you're talkative or not, if you're extroverted, introverted, it, it, it doesn't matter. People really feel your energy and, and feel like either they get so comfortable around you or not and that's what makes the work great when yeah. people are that comfortable and are fine having you there or don't feel your presence and are natural around you that's the whole point it's not cinema it's not film but to get to that that's what fascinated me with all this to get that all right and not right but like to have that in a frame, so difficult. Yeah. So, and and that's why I I love this this career. How did you come to photojournalism? Um, did you come through the second part of that word or the first part of that word from the journalism or from the photo? Uh, from I think uh, the photo. But the thing is. When I was really young, my father always had the news on. And, um, uh, the second day of the second intifada, Muhammad al Dura, remember that striking video, my Gaza? Mm -hmm. And it was the, a cameraman, yeah. was a cameraman actually working for France too. And that day, September 30th was it. And seeing this boy hunched over, in a video with his father protecting him 
Gamel Dora, and both of them being killed in daylight. And the boy being 12 years old, I was 12 years old too. My father, like the news, the, the TV was just on. So that stayed in my memory. Like till today, September 30th, like I, I know, you know, like, like uh, I have specific funeral dates or anniversaries of people that I care about. He's on there, you know, it affected me so much. And I, and it was video, it was a cameraman. So this is the, for people listening. So this was the Palestinian boy and his father who were killed by yeah. Israeli uh, snipers, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. In broad daylight. Yeah. Hiding behind. So the father was uh, hunched over the do- the son. Exactly. Exactly. So that was huge to me. And I'm just seeing this video and I'm, I still don't understand everything about Palestine. I'm young, you know, it was so, but it was this footage being repeated on our local media over and over again. It just stayed with me. Yeah. I've seen that footage, you know, it's, um, it is very unfortunately an iconic piece of footage. And I have to admit, I have never not once thought of about the person behind the lens. Yeah. When did you think of the person behind the lens? Uh, when the first time you saw it, or did later did you realize? Wait a second, there is a human there doing this work. I thought about him. This was lately, actually, like a couple of years ago. When I when I grew up, hmm. you know, I'm like, huh. And watching cameramen work, not VJs, but cameramen, the way they stand there all day with so much resilience and just do their job you know it's very like live news you know that um, that world is is very different all he's there to do is just you know be there standing with all this trouble and keep the camera rolling on these live scenes so just lately or like a couple of years ago going into the industry I'm like, oh, that's, that's, it's really different. Yeah. Because I felt it and I've seen them and I've worked with them. And so it's very different. Do, do you feel like your, your job is to, to cover? So let me try to say this. I'm trying to think about the best way to describe your job. Is it to cover like, the 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 human human life during war or is there a different way of saying it i'm trying to describe think about what there, you think your job is so uh for me specifically not yeah, like for you specifically done. so it's basically like an umbrella right everyone thinks it might be just one box but it's like there is news and that's breaking you just have to go very quickly and do the job super fast. Yeah. That's what's asked. But then there is, for me, I've always had the interests of what happened around the scene, right? And staying longer on projects. And, and in the wire world, it's not, um, it's, it's harder to get into that because it's about, as they say, feeding the beast. 
people don't really want to hear about your opinions about this person and poetry. They want to just see the news. You know, uh, one person said to me once, Gazira had like a time where there was they there wasn't a lot of news. They had a lot of documentaries, and he said, "I just want to see the news. What's what's going on?" You know. So sometimes, so that's a big part of it in the wire world. And but for me, I I I love shifting. Like I have two extremes. I can work very fast. But I can work. I can go for years. Yeah, and that's what that's where I'm actually transitioning into, like right now, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about some of um, some of your projects that you've worked on over the last few years, um, and we'll use them kind of as case studies. I'd love to use them as case studies to not only un- only understand the problems and the the situations that you're covering, but also to understand you and your approach to work. Um, I think one of those those projects is the one about HIV in Egypt. Um, and this is a topic that was really, really new to me until I um, until we had the, that movie Asma on Afikra. Um, and I was like, I didn't know anything about this. Um, so can I ask you to describe the sort of the situation um, and what drew you to the story, um, and how you, how you approached it? So the story came from sort of, a, a, a bit of a personal place, uh, because, you know, my, my father was very ill at the time. So as a family, we were obviously going to hospitals, going to a lot of doctors, the health industry in general in Egypt. So, so it came to me, um, sort of through that, looking at health in Egypt or thinking a lot about it, you know, and there isn't a lot of reporting at all on that. Um, so, uh, AIDS day actually was coming up. So I was thinking, I'm like, anytime I've heard anything about HIV and AIDS in Egypt is super taboo. No one talks about it in a human way at all. Um, there, I mean, there's an example of a, of a journalist who, uh, who basically had this investigation and she had police behind her and it was like a boat. I don't know if you know it. Okay. No, I don't, I don't know it. I've never heard it. It was like a boat party of, um, gay people and she went in and they were arrested and basically taken to trial. So this, this is the media. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's, I mean, that's sort of a different issue. So with HIV, I was thinking what's, what's going on. And I got really, really interested. And, and, uh, yeah, I just, I got into it and I, I went to meet a doctor at the fever hospital in Beba and, I had to slowly gain people's trust because people with HIV here have never been photographed and it's really big to be on camera. You don't like it's, it can be very dangerous for you, actually. So because people, you're, you're ostracized. Um, people don't want to touch you. People don't want to work with you. People, it, 
it's really bad. You're yeah. almost treated like a leper, like as if you're... Um... Like a leper. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I went to the Faithful Hospital and he introduced me to two people that agreed to come and talk to me. One of them was a woman, one of them was a man. So, so the woman was so scared. Like she told me her story, but I, I put it on the side because she didn't want her story out there, even though she wears the niqab. She, she completely refused to have her story published. That's how worried she'd get. But she gave me her story and that was that to give context. And um, the other person, Ahmed, he started talking, you know, and, and he got, for some reason, we stayed in the room in the hospital and she left and he got really comfortable with me and we had very long conversations. So that's how it happened. I told him if I can please follow him and, you know, talk to him more and try to understand what it's like to live with HIV in Egypt. So he opened up his, his doors to me. And that's, that was a really big deal. Um, even at the end, you know, I asked him, I was like, why, why did you, why did you trust me? Yeah. So he said, there are two things that you did. I didn't even realize I did. He's like, first of all, uh, you didn't ask how I got it. And second, you shook my hand. I didn't even think about these things when I met them. But apparently for him, that was huge. And that's why he got very comfortable. So yeah, I used a medium format film camera and I worked very slowly with him. That type of project, how do you manage the the toll it takes on you emotionally? Because if you're if you're sort of slotting it in between the rest of your work over the course of a few months, I'd imagine it's uh, like it's really hard to sort of manage. Yeah, that. like a year and a half actually. Um it was really hard to manage because with AP, this was, this project was part of Magnum Foundation. And, um, and, uh, and I, I mean, AP told me, cause I'm staffed, you know, you can do what you want, but it cannot affect your job. So I had to, like in my weekends, you know, try to s switch off the news and all that and just recalibrate you know, my brain. And it does take a toll, definitely. And it's something um, in the wire world, I, I don't think we talk a lot about, of yeah. like switching from like a sports event to a war. It, uh, to me, it was, it, it got very difficult at the end. Yeah. You said something earlier, you said, you know, you have to feed the beast, right? Mm. Can you That's describe? What they say in the wire world. Yeah. Can you describe who and what that beast is? The beast is the audience, the machine, basically. It's like yeah. a factory. But it's violent. It's a violent it's world. Very. It's Why very... is it so violent? This is um, this is the language and the vocab they used in this world and still do use. Um, it's like go out and shoot it and expose it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. 
shooting it and getting it. And so there was, it makes sense to feed the beast, you know, yeah. um, but because uh, the, the, the person who typically is in charge of feeding the beast is the one who gets scratched up and bruised up and sort of <laughs> hurt by the beast and if not killed by the beast. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, yeah. And is that how it feels for you? Like when you look back at your time in that world, are you like, oh, so many scratches and bruises. Thank God yeah. I, I like made it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm... I'm... I'm very fortunate, very privileged, and very lucky, um, because it 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 is really difficult, and it's um, it's your whole life. Yeah, it's it's really your whole life, and um, and everything else is in between it. Does that make sense? I yeah yeah you have yeah. to. I mean, I wonder. We'll come back to this in a bit, but. Is there, is it inescapable? Is there a way to change the beast fundamentally? Because like when you think about news coming out of the Arab world, this is a global thing, but news coming out of the Arab world, is there a way to make cover news responsibly, but also sustainably where the, the people who are writing the stories, covering the, covering the news are also not chewed up and spit out? and sort of broken because of how intense the process is? I think, I think there's a way, of course, because I think it's so important and it's needed. Okay. Um, but I think any craft you do, if you're an artist, if you make wood, any, anything you do so much, you do get hurt by it. If it's not physically, it can be meant at some point. If you're a cook, you'll get burnt. You know, it's, if it's something you do with so much drive and passion and it is your life, you have to be ready to sleep at night. Yeah, you will be thinking about these people. Yeah. Or you're not, or you'll, or you'll be so numb and you won't be able to continue. I think there are ways to make it better, much better for people. But it's um, it's a it's a very serious kind of choice, you know. Yeah. And I think you don't uh, understand it till you're in it. But people, I think people need to explain this more, uh, and and be better guides and better mentors and. The conversation of mental health in that world needs to really open up. Like people need to start talking about these things in that world because it's, uh, I feel like it's kind of neglected and it's, you know, it's macho, obviously. And, you know, you, sh you shouldn't really talk about your feelings and, and that's, you know, it's, um, it, it needs, it needs to change. Definitely, it needs to change in that sense. Do you, when you get approached, I mean, you're by all accounts an incredibly successful version of this job. So I'm sure young photojournalists hit you up and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting into photojournalism. You look like the perfect success story, right? 
<laughs> what yeah. advice do you give them? I mean, they say, I mean, they must say to you, look, Nadiman, you have, you have, you won two Pulitzers. You must be happy all the time. You've totally made it. Um, I want to be like you. What advice do you tell these young photojournalists who say that? Honestly, I think I'm, I'm a bit harsh, not very nice. And I, I, I wait to see how serious the person is to keep knocking on the door because it takes a toll on me to give advice. So I'm a bit, um, because I don't want to see another young person like throw away so much and give up so much for something they're not serious about. And telling people stories is an immense responsibility, huge. And it's going to take a toll on you, you know? And I wouldn't like to see that. Uh, I don't like to see people with like kind of innocent, wide, curious eyes um, experience that if they don't need to. Yeah. So I'm very hard on this. And um, b because I, I, I wouldn't want that for anyone unless they're really so driven, so driven and and really want it. So, so yeah. You have to ask me 10 times before I take it. Yes. <laughs> you, you have to keep coming back. It's like uh, when people ask me, used to ask me, do you think I should go to law school? I always would say, definitely not. And if my definitely not can convince you, then Akid, you should go to law school. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's just kind of the same thing. It's kind yeah. of the same thing. That's so funny. Um, if you were to speak to a younger version of yourself, would you have told yourself you're, you have no idea what you're getting into? Yes. But I still would have done it. Yeah, that's the 10th time. Yeah. Um, because to navigate um, this, uh, where I'm from, woman, um, what I do so different, people don't understand it here. She's putting herself in the, like what is in our culture and in the foreign culture. So men here, men there, this beast, it was hard. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? How do you navigate the following challenge, which I think is something that you must think about all the time. So often, so many of the like most respective global news outlets are Western outlets. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're run by oftentimes white guys in their 60s uh, from Europe and the States and stuff like that. Um, who their sort of Orientalist gaze is inescapable even if they speak whatever local language uh, perfectly, it's a perspective that I, I understand that they would have. And I almost even kind of forgive in many ways. I say like, what are you going to do? It's just where you're coming from. And you can try to get it out and iron it out as much as possible, but it's a perspective that is based off your biography, um, regardless of how good their intentions are. You have a different perspective. You have a different biography you have a different vantage point 
how do you sort of manage the fact that so often the institutions that you have to operate within have these oftentimes narrow views of the Arab world. Um, and you're trying to tell expansive, complicated stories. How do you do that? Uh, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't easy at all. So there was a lot of pushing and pushing and pushing boundaries, you know, um, and breaking these boundaries. But within, obviously within the limits, at the end of the day, you're working for an American company. So, but the past few years, uh, I, I mean, there was an openness because it, it hasn't really become, things have changed a bit in terms of, uh, there, there are more women in charge. There are a lot of managers around me who were women and they can be white and not and from here. And so, so it was a lot of, uh, really, uh, explaining to people because sometimes when you fight with people and say you're orientalist you're this you're that the result in the end won't really take you anywhere rather than explaining things and humanizing things a certain way um explaining a joke to someone who doesn't understand anything but humanizing that joke but it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes time. So they're like, huh, okay. So they understand. It's like, oh, Egypt is a mosaic. It's, it's, it's full of layers, full of colors. You know, they, it's not just veiled women and non-veiled women. There's so many layers and nuances in between. So it's like explaining all these things to people that that's like the key to opening up a bit of like, a discussion, you know, yeah. on what we can do. And then we end up coming to a compromise. So every story, it's, it, it sort of was like that. Yeah, it's tricky. It's really, really tricky. Very, yeah. very, very, very tricky. You know, and uh, you can find, th this can be a region, you can find someone writing about something completely disagree with, with yeah. your colleague. So... What do you do? How do you handle that? Yeah. How do you handle that? You know what I mean? And you can get upset. And because we represent each other too. Yeah. So I can, for example, go out and work on something in Egypt. And then something happens, I don't know, in Palestine, Israel. And I say I'm from AP. And then people are like, didn't you guys write about blah, blah? No, we don't trust you. So it, it probably comes wasn't, on me. Didn't you, it, it probably wasn't, didn't you guys? It was, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it becomes very personal, yeah. you know? And um, so that's very hard because your reputation is the company also. Yeah. So to kind of remove myself as like a person and AP to have these separate boxes or have people see me that way, uh, was difficult. Yeah. I want to talk about your coverage of Yemen. Um, oh. How did it feel to win a Pulitzer for that coverage? Um, 
it's very uh it's it's very tricky and sensitive area because it's it's very hard to be um as just talking to my best friend about this it's very hard to be quote unquote celebrating something that's so gruesome and hard but at the same time it's a big pat on the back also um for 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 the you know the work and the hard work you've done uh to highlight this and it highlight the issue so we were a team of three people was and it was the first actually arab team to win a pulsar together um it was me maggie michelle she's an egyptian investigative uh, correspondent who's with reuters now actually and madaziki he's yemen incredible journalist and video journalist and fixer and a lot of things um so you know to he didn't get his visa to come and receive the award in the us that's why i have my picture uh, with the picture with me and maggie and and i held up a phone with a video a live video of him you know to make a statement in front of all my bosses and the crowd it was very um gutsy to do i didn't plan it i just called him before going up on stage and i decided just to hold him up you know um he literally got rejected he literally got rejected so that's why i made that statement on stage um and he got a standing ovation you know so that is obviously focused sort of on him on the team but it's it talks about a lot of things and the issue and highlighting yemen through our eyes you know as arabs and being from the region so that in ap was there, like you don't see that like yeah. a, a arab team three people winning this prize for the Yemen story. So it's very, like I said, it, it's like, um, I mean, it's, it, it goes like ex- to extremes for me because it's, um, it's a, it's, it highlighted, but at the same time, it's a huge reminder of what happened to thousands of people. the famine you know the 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 famine which has affected uh, my relationship to food maggie's relationship to food uh, you know it just there's there's so much there so it it's good and it it's um hard at the same time what surprised you about the the things that you saw the actual images um once you actually got there because i you probably walked in with preconceptions of what you were going to see yeah what was surprising once you actually got there this what i was so surprised about in yemen is really this is not a cliche people's kindness in this situation it's insane their kindness is on another level of arab 
you know, another level. Like there's this, uh, there's one story uh, about Hagar, a woman who's basically had emancipated bones and a child. And we went to talk to her. She, she only eats a piece of the bread a day. Okay. She makes one loaf for the whole family and that's all they have and some sugar for energy. That's it. So we went to speak to her and Hagar, that's her name. And she insisted the three of us have a bite of the bread. So she made it while we were there and she insisted that we, we have a piece of their meal. So of course me and Maggie were looking at Mad, like, how can we? So he looks back at all this. We're not talking. He looks back at us like, don't you dare get up and eat a piece. Because we would have really offended her. If we're like, no, you're not doing well. This is not only poverty, this is famine. You can hardly move. But she would have been so hurt, so hurt by that. And she would have really felt it. And she's inviting us to have a peace. But we were feeling so conflicted, you know, obviously. And it was just in this, like, I, 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 when I came back, I, I said, I don't even know what strong women are. Like when I saw her, like the strength she has to take care of her family, hardly being able to move. And she's having the smallest bite just for some energy, but for her children, it was, so, we'll never forget these things, these kinds of stories. Yeah. That's, that's what I mean. It's on, it's on another level. Yeah. The extent of the, the generosity. The extent. And, yeah. Yes. Yes. And in that moment, are you literally like taking photos or you can't even do that because you have to just no. be there? No. A lot of times I leave my camera. I, yeah. Like a lot of my frames are just like one or two frames. And the rest is sitting or listening or, you know, um, and sometimes I actually, this is kind of against the classical way, but sometimes I actually leave the picture. I, I let it be like, I don't take it and it can be an incredible picture, but I get, sometimes I get paralyzed, you know, I can't explain it, but I get. I can't hold up the camera. I'm too in the moment. And for a long time, I hated myself for that because it's like, no, you're, you're all the way there and all these logistics and listens and then you can't. But then I realized that it's, there's, I mean, there's so much. Each person has their way, you know, has their approach to things. And one manager, um, He's Serbian. His name is Dusan Pranic. You know, there was something that happened, but he said something to me that stuck with me. He's like, you know, he's older generation and he's Serbian man. And he said, Nariman, it's, it's okay. You didn't get that. Um, sometimes, you know, you just have to be yourself because yeah. we're ordered to get certain things. So when he said that, I'm like, 
lately I started gaining the confidence of, you know, if sometimes you just need to leave things alone and other things hopefully would come up, but it's very hard to do that. And it takes a lot of, um, it needs maturity and it takes a lot of maybe some meditation and really believing that like when you let something go, something else will really replace it when, when it's correct, when it's right. Yeah. Cause the nature of what you're doing can be extractive, right? Yeah. Even, even, the, even the, the, the words we use, the terminology, like take the photo, right? Exactly. And so it, 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 it's a, it's a weight on you and no, I, I need, not only am I taking her bread, I'm also taking the moment. I'm also taking the photo. Exactly. And what exactly. is, what is she getting in return? You know? And exactly. so it's like, it's a heavy, it's a heavy thing for sure. Man, there's, there's a lot of talk about the, the return. And, um, you know, you just come to, uh, we had this discussion also, like what he had asked me, do you think we are doing anything to the world doing what we do? Did Nick Wood's picture, Vietnam, Napalm, did it stop the war? No, but it defined the war. So you're, you're not there. We're not an NGO. You know, uh, we're meant to say what's going on the way it is. So that, that is the point. It's like documenting my generation's history, whether it's in Yemen or Ukraine. It's my generation and it's a responsibility to have these things documented and for people to take the baton, you know, and carry it on and do something about it. Yeah. Everyone has a role here in our generation. So, I mean, th these stories did have, I, I mean, lots of people did, did really in the Arab world and in Egypt, like, we got so many calls and reactions and money and food and aid and we did. Uh, but so, so yeah, it, it, p more people, I mean, it's up to NGOs. It's up to people to also get involved. Yeah. You know, we're like the messengers, like the, like pinging you. You know, and a lot of people say, I can't look at the news anymore. It's so depressing. Like, okay. Yeah. It is. It, it, we, because the world also does have really bad things happening in it. Yeah. So it is a truth. I mean, that there is famine in, in Yemen. Um, can we talk about Sudan a little bit? Yeah. You've done a bunch of work in Sudan. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about what your work was there and how that has changed also your impression of what's going on there? Obviously, Sudan is closer to home for you. Um, yeah. Does it feel closer to home? Uh, yes and no. Sometimes and sometimes. Yeah. 
Yemen maybe a bit more in, in some ways. Um, uh, because Sudan is very diverse. I feel even more than Yemen in, in people's way. And I went like, I went for, uh, after the Tigray war. Mm -hmm. So it was about the Ethiopia story. Like I had went to Sudan for an anniversary project about, about the Sudan story, but most of my work is about Ethiopia actually. Uh, because, um, in November 2020, you know, Abu Ahmad waged the war on this region, Tigray, on the TPLF. Yeah. Okay. So what he did was he cut all communications in that region. So no one was able to get any news, no access to anything in that region. And there were Crazy. massacres happening, massacres. So I called my boss and I told him I have to go to the borders. I was very driven by it because we're hearing bits and pieces, but there's no, there are no journalists, you know? So you can't, and there is this, this war of like no internet, no nothing. Like Ukraine is an online war. You're online. You can see yeah. what's going on. This yeah. was shut completely, but there's one small detail that was missed. The refugees crossing into Sudan coming with story. So that's what started the news cycle. People crossing and coming in super like dehydrated and tired and with only like their clothes on their backs with their children. And it was really bad. And it was thousands fleeing. Uh, so that's where, you know, we got all the testimonies and did all the work on the borders. And Sudan was, I mean, the government or the officials there were okay with that because it's about the Ethiopia story, not about Sudan. The Sudan story itself is really difficult. Yeah. It's a really difficult one between the RSF and the military. Um, <laughs> Their generals are very tough. So to get access to tell a story there, I mean, you're like right now, it can honestly be a suicide mission. Like it's, but it's so important, yeah. right? Like when you see there's a lack of news, you feel it also. Yeah, it's a you know? vacuum. Exactly. There is a vacuum. Yeah. Um, we, we don't know what's going on. And with Tigray, you know, I was so driven to go there because the things we're hearing is this is a genocide. The yeah. rapes are insane. When, when you hear about an Eritrean group of soldiers go in, you know, tell a father to rape his daughter or they'll kill him and her and he doesn't do it. They rape her in front of him and then kill her and then kill him. When you hear stories like that, this, this kind of stuff needs to go to the ICC. So it's, I mean, like Sudan, there's a vaccine. So how do we know what's, what's happening on the ground? Of course, there are citizen journalists, but of course it's, it's, it's not enough. I mean, yeah, you need a lot of journalists to, to get there if possible. Do you feel like 
let's use these two stories, this, the Tigray story and the current RSF uh, government story in Sudan. Um, from my little tiny vantage point through Afikra, I'm amazed at how little I know and how little our audience knows about these stories. Yeah. It's, it is shocking, actually. Um, the, the amount of not even misinformation, just lack of information, absence yeah. of information. Do you feel like that is driven by a lack of interest and a lack of compassion in the Arab world for these types of stories, the non-dominant stories? I think it's, um, I think it's uh, uh, two things. Um, first of all, the government in these places are different. Unlike Ukraine, for example, you get your accreditation, go ahead. That's it. You know, words on a paper and really that's it. And the sides of the war are clear. Yeah. In our region, it's a lot different. You know, with military states, it's, they don't want you to talk. So, so, so you have an oppressive, like we have to also put responsibility on it, not only the white man and the beast and all this, but also on our region who are not letting us speak, who do not want journalists to exist and say stories, right? So they don't want us to care. They don't want us. They do not want us. So obviously, Egypt, I, I don't want to get into that, but I don't know where the journalism is. It's, um, and it's for a reason. I mean, the only thing you can work in our regions, maybe that's why the younger generations are going into documentary photography by default. Also, because, I mean, maybe you can turn the camera on yourself and tell the story that way. There are different ways, but to go on the street and ask people uh, how they're doing, they'll be very scared, first of all. They won't want to talk to you. Like, very, very scared. And you you don't even have the rights to it, even if you do it. If you have two accreditations in your pockets, you know, your IDs, your press IDs, it doesn't matter. You don't have a paper for this specific street. So, it, so there's that. So when you have that and less people work on it, there will be less interest and there's going to be fatigue. And the way people, I mean, if on the news you're seeing like low resolution videos of Sudan with, you know, people uh, waving their Kalashnikovs and like yelling and screaming all day, obviously you're going to get tired after a while. From seeing yeah. that to a human story, there will be some interest. So you also, with the, um, with the bigger publications or the, you know, or that gaze, you're, part of your job is to present it to them, to say, we can do this and this and this to get the interest. 
to 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 make people see that this is of importance but it's the way but when you're the constant coverage is like fighting screaming yelling low res videos it's um makes people tired and and people you can't blame them people are tired already yeah so so yeah so that's definitely a huge challenge with our government yeah it's like as you're talking now it's yeah they have a vested interest in making sure that we don't care about each other we don't care about these stories yeah definitely definitely and they i mean they make you not want to work anymore because it's always so hard i mean it's it's extremely difficult um so so you get so nervous walking around the street like like i pulled back from working here in egypt for a reason and because on the street if i'm walking with my camera people are looking at my camera as if it's as if i'm holding a clutch and cold so i felt like i was a criminal you know and that affected me a lot and i didn't want i don't want people like forget the government and authorities they can handle anything you know throw at them but it people i care about you know humans on the street i don't want them looking at me so scared so like i felt i was yeah like i'm uh, like i'm going to um like you're the enemy them. like i'm and i am the enemy so i pulled back you know and just told myself let's let's wait and see you know when 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 the time is right it's, it's going to come and the approach will be different yeah when is the time going to be right we'll see <laughs> give me some hope but there's but there's always a way there like document there's always a, a different way but like first the sudan story uh that's a very very tough one yeah because if you go in with the military right they want you to take specific images and not what you want to do yeah so that's why yeah, the journalist is just it's it's a it's a tough one but i but i think at some point it can be broken stories will come up and they'll have to open up for people to tell these stories it's history yeah what about i mean stories in sort of like authoritarian regimes that seem stable oh. i always wonder wonder about these places you know places like jordan yeah. uh you know the gcc egypt also egypt right there's there's an illusion of stability i mean egypt it's less yeah, there's yeah. less of yeah, an illusion yeah. Well, uh, yeah yeah when you when you're yeah when you're comparing to the emirates yeah yeah and i wonder how how does it how do people cover those stories you know um in those places jordan i always think of jordan as a really good example because the the state is so strong there yeah but it's a complicated place and it has really complicated stories um and telling those stories shouldn't be necessarily this threat yeah you know yeah um but i wonder how how do you do them you know how how can you actually tell these stories effectively um 
when there's such a strong grasp? I mean, it's a lot of, uh, I mean, you have to go through the correct quote unquote channels with, uh, with your accreditations and all that, but it's, but it's also really, you have to dig, you know, uh, and be very patient with these kinds of countries. Mm. Like Maggie Michelle worked in the Emirates and it's so hard and Saudi Arabia, it's so hard to have people talk officially. And when they send a minder with you, do you know what a mind, you know what a minder is? A no minder idea. is like, um, a person from the government who's just with you all day. To, to mind their own business? What does mind mean? Ma- to, to mind you. To, to, <laughs> to uh, mind your business. <laughs> to, exactly. To make, make sure everything's in tech. You I've know? never heard that, that verb in that way. It's so funny. They're literally minding the, your business. Exactly. <laughs> They're called the minder. When I was in Saudi Arabia covering the Hig, um, oh, we had a minder to make sure, you know, and I was constantly, <laughs> uh, running away from him. And it was easy because I'm the woman in the group. So I can easily like go away from him and he'll be with the men. And so I was able to get freer and looser pictures, you know. But he's there to make sure you're on the correct track. So, and the Emirates is like this. And Jordan, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to say anything out of line, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, ve- it is very difficult. Yeah. But like my colleague Maggie, uh, when she worked on an investigation, she, she was able to get some stuff, but her, um, it took her like maybe a year. You really have to be so patient. So, yeah. so patient. And it's not the officials that will speak to you in the end, of course. It's the people. And getting people to speak, it's very, it's one big family. So it, so it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. What are some of your, before we wrap up, um, if you were to put together a little like um, portfolio of some of your projects that maybe have had less acclaim, but for you, they, they hold a special place in your heart. What are some of those projects? Just, I'm trying to give people things to look up um, that you think, yeah, this means a lot to me, but maybe it's didn't win all these awards. Yeah. Um, I mean, Yemen obviously hit home. Uh, and Egypt, <laughs> Egypt is a sensitive one. Why? Because, because it's home and, um, it's very, very tricky. Um, I think it, one of the, one of the projects that was actually very difficult to do was the demolitions, trying to photograph, you know, as they're demolishing all these neighborhoods and, you know, it's, I mean, it's military, so you have to be very careful. Anything like that can really send you to prison. So that one, that definitely won't win award. But it Is was there. These are the demolitions to build New Cairo. Yeah, there was a there is a project on specifically the demolitions of the cemetery, 
And in that cemetery, actually, I, I uh, our family graves are there. So, so it was, wow. yeah. So it was very difficult to do. Like people were digging up like bones of their grandparents to move them to another uh, graveyard to build roads and uh, highways and uh, bridges. So yeah, that definitely won't win anything but it was very challenging to do uh without uh being you know quote unquote caught or 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 getting in trouble you know yeah uh, yeah are those is that project is that project for you so you remember that this happened so that there's evidence that this happened or are you trying to tell people, hey, this is happening? It's it's both. There is one project that was with with work when I was working for AP, but then there is like just other pictures that I keep taking on my own to show the changes of Egypt, the look yeah. of Egypt, just as like um as like visual evidence. You know, you know when you look at like pictures from the 80s of Egypt or the 70s of Egypt. This is what it looks like in 2000, uh, I don't know, uh, 19 to 23. Yeah. You know, in, in, in this era, in his, during this regime, this is how the country looks like. And these, the projects that they were hoping to do. Yeah. Egypt is tricky for sure. The demolitions, I mean, also when you like read about I mean, like the Nubian displacement and just the number of times that this has been done in the last yeah. hundred years or two hundred years. Exactly. I'd just be like, "All right, we're destroying this entire part, completely exactly. removing it, and just de deleting history." And just be like, "All right, this doesn't exist it, anymore." It doesn't exist anymore, and people can't say a word about. It. And yeah. they just pick people up and move them to another area, and compensate them with money, obviously, but it's. I mean, the problem is with not doing these kinds of stories or not talking about it, it normalizes the situation and normalizes people moving, you know, just like, just like that. Like, oh, okay, your house is gone. It's rubble. And it, it normalizes the silence too. It normalizes the silence and you start to become silent. So it's like this weird psychological journalism warfare yeah you know and you start to mind yourself because you get yeah. exhausted and you get fatigue also from constantly being harassed or detained or you know it's like you can have this energy you go out you're like oh okay i'm gonna get this this and this but then after a while you get tired of it for sure so you need to take a step back and maybe find other approaches. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap up, but I can keep on talking to you. Um, before we do, um, I want to ask you, do you have uh, advice or recommendations for people to look into? Um, photojournalists that are inspiration to you, either from the past, just names for people to look up or from the present? Um, so 
uh, obviously like uh, the the older you get or the every every chapter of your life, you you tend to look at new other new people, right? There's not, I mean, because you change and evolve, so you start to find diamonds that you you didn't even realize exist. There's like the commercial education, then you start to really dive into people that speak your language. So for me, it started with like someone like Mary Ellen Mark and like the the beauty and her images and her working in in her country and like just the there's so much rawness and she she's such a I mean she's an she's an artist a photogenist she combined all of that and I love looking at and someone that really affected me also is Farouk Ibrahim he is a the Egyptian photographer who took pictures of foreign uh, cousins and said it. I just couldn't believe for my generation, I cannot believe or imagine going to the presidential palace, you know, doing, staying with the president Sisi and taking pictures of him in his bedroom and his bathroom, him shaving. It's a, it's a world that I can't even imagine. So, so for me, Faru Ibrahim is like, represents a lot and I I don't look at him with the eye of like wanting to be, but as an audience. So I really appreciate and love his work in Egypt. He represents really like Egypt photography for me, like what he did during his time, because it's foreign to me. I feel like yeah. I'm seeing another country. I feel like I'm from somewhere else. So it's very fascinating to me looking at yeah. Um And... You know, for me, someone who's also affecting me is, uh, uh, Nusha Tavakulian. She's with Magnum and she's Iranian and, uh, she was a photojournalist. Now she's obviously in documentary and, but getting closer, I, I started seeing someone that speaks my language, you know, and, 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 and someone, someone whose work is, um, is so, um, smart, uh, so poetic, so artistic, yet journalistic, you know? So, and she's from Iran. A lot of people there are real, like, real artists. Like, they're, I, I love their, like, the eye and the hand, you know, and, and their color palettes. And so it's, so she's someone I really, uh, like I, I looked a lot at her work and I still do obviously. And, and like, I just, I just like following her because she's closer to home. Uh, and she's a woman in Iran. So there's, there's a lot there that I feel like there's a language, uh, spoken. And there's Moses Semen. Uh, he's someone that's also a photojournalist and he's, his, his work, as a photojournalist is very, was very hard, but so sensitive, you know, and I love, I, I really love seeing that. And he's, um, you see, you see kindness in his pictures with throughout the chaos, you know, and he, there's something about his work. He doesn't beautify too much. He doesn't, but it's, it's just there, you know, you'll, you'll see it, but you won't want to close it right away. 
you won't want to shut it off right away. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, someone's blog that I like to read. I, I really loved that he has this blog. Adam Ferguson. He writes a blog and he writes about his mistakes and he, he has like a one blog that a love letter to photography. So that's really, I like going in and reading just, it's loose, it's easy and it's, for me, it's like therapeutic. It's nice to read his journey, you know, so openly. And there's also um, a podcast, Ben Smith. He, you know him, yeah? No. He get no? Okay. He, he just gets a, a lot, like a wide range of photographers, photojournalists, news photographers, art, like, He's, um, I, I, uh, I play his podcasts uh, when I'm on assignment because when I hear other photojournalists speak, like Lindsay Adario, Ed Cassie, whoever, you know, all these people, I just get on and I listen. It, it's very therapeutic for me on assignment. So Ben Smith, yeah, he has a lot, a wide range of people. I love these. Um, Okay, we're going to do the quick Q&A and then, and then wrap up. Um, okay. So these days, what are you reading or watching? Anything? Uh, so my best friend had recommended uh, a book called If Egyptian If an Egyptian Cannot Speak English by Noor Nega. And I yeah. just finished. You, you re you've read it? No, I haven't read or it. But, uh, we're, uh, hopefully she'll be on the series soon. Okay. It's fantastic. I'm very excited to hear her speak. She's a poet. And I, I love her. And um, another book is um, A Peace to End All Peace. So it's a bit yeah. different. Yeah, David uh, Fronkin. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a bit more academic, obviously, but it, sure. it's good. The fall of the Ottoman Empire and the yeah, creation of the modern, modern yeah. So not current. Cool. Um, yeah. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? My father. When? Who's not with us anymore, but... Um, what decade? Hmm? What decade? Which decade? I think uh, in the 90s, growing up. So sweet. What do you think people most misunderstand about your work? Uh, I don't know if it's a, uh, about the work or if it's about the process or what goes into it. But one of the things that really, really upsets me is when someone says, you, um, is it the rush? This is so hurtful to me. It's a very hurtful thing to say. Is it the rust? Why is it so hurtful? Because I feel like it's very harsh and I feel like it's very uh, assuming about yeah. what I do and that I'm voyeuristic and I'm a vulture and telling stories to get something, you know, uh, for my own dopamine, <laughs> you know, for 
it's very uh, like it's very as if it's completely 100% what I do is completely about me and has nothing to do with the people I interact with so do you, I don't know I, is that part of the reason why you try to withdraw even like almost to the maximum my sense from you is that you really withdraw almost so as to not be accused of this being for the rush. Yeah, I think so. Because right? it's very hurtful when like you um, you put all this uh, all this work and you're trying your best and uh, you know and when you start in the beginning it's like your eyes are you know you're overwhelmed you're running around with it's different. But when you continue, that's another thing. You have times where you might even stop, you know, because it's so hard. But then you tell yourself, no, I'll, it's, it's your responsibility. So, yeah. so, so that's, that's, um, I, I just would hope people would rather ask questions than say something that can be very triggering actually to a photojournalist or a documentary photographer we just need to be a bit careful and it's okay to ask questions but not throw sentences at you yeah the last one is um whose work do you admire or are, ins or are inspired by let's say outside of your profession outside yeah outside of your profession I love scholars like um, like Abdel Hakim Murad. He's an amazing scholar, and um, I love how he talks about Islam and how he explains the religion and how he talks about the heart and how he like. I just I admire his his work and um, his scholarly work. In this day and age. So nice. Um, so if anyone's interested in connecting with you, they should go to your website. Um, you're all, also all over social media. Uh, Nariman, it was so nice talking to you. You're Thank such you, a Mike. nice person to, to speak with and your work is so powerful and beautiful and thoughtful. So thanks Thank so much. Thank you for having me. Thank Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.